Lord, again, we uh, desire to lift you up and praise you and give you the worship that you deserve. We get distracted by all the things of the world, and Lord, as we focus on what you have revealed in your word, we desire that it will elicit within us praise for what you've given us, what you've done in us, and the things that you have uh, revealed and taught. We desire to be true to what you have taught, careful with it, knowing that you have inspired it, have given it to us without error. We praise you for that. If there be anything that uh, distract us, keep us from focusing on what you would have us for today, that we might set that aside. Any unconfessed sin, that we may deal with that as well. That we may be totally open to hearing your voice from your word. Commit our time and our day week to you, desiring that you have your way in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the kids of the Pertzers is named Eden. We have another Eden with us. You want to introduce? Oh, hello, everyone. No, he's supposed to introduce you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yes. Well, this is Eden. Is that right? Great. In the book of Romans, as we are looking at very important passage, now I take it that it is describing particularly the struggle that believers go through. And it's a little surprising because some people elevate the the uh, writers and the characters in the Bible and elevate them to a point that they think, well, they, they couldn't have the same struggles that I have. So last week I gave you the different views that people take on this passage. And one of the conclusions, the main one, is that a lot of people think, well, what Paul is describing here, it has to have been before he became a Christian. <laughs> I'm glad you find it humorous. <laughs> but I think he's describing, and another thing that's interesting, he's describing from his personal experience. And that's one of the reasons why the commentators and some Bible teachers have a hard time with it, because we kind of elevate people, not realizing that the Christian life is not easy. In fact, uh, we would even say it is what? impossible. And there's only one way to live the Christian life. And unfortunately, most Christians are unaware. Either they're not taught or they've forgotten or they're not into what scripture teaches. So we're in the portion that talks about the struggle. And most of that, uh, we're not going to get through the whole chapter, but a few verses is kind of the heart of that struggle, 13 through 17, the failure of the flesh. So I'll give you a little quick review, and then we'll move through that passage and see if it does not describe your experience as well. I was hoping Maddie would be here. We had a little discussion last week, and she was reading apparently some commentators that took that view that I don't take. So anyway, we're talking about a letter that was written to believers now, Paul was not in the Mamertine prison when he writes the book of Romans. He was at the end of the third missionary journey, but he eventually he ended up there. I show that because we walked by that prison when we were 
there recently, and also in the city of Rome in the first century. Looks familiar. Do you remember when I took that? <laughs> yeah, but I show these mainly to emphasize that uh, what we have in Scripture, these are real things. Paul writes to real people in real cities. Book of Acts describes real events that took place. Paul eventually got to the city of Rome, but before he was able to get there, he writes this letter. And I take it that had he been able to go to the city of Rome, this is the doctrine, this is the teaching that he would have delivered in person. And at the end of the third missionary journey, he's realizing he's got to be in Jerusalem and it's not going to have time to go to Rome. And he does the second best thing. He writes the book of Romans. And we, because of the leading of the Holy Spirit in the life of Paul, we are the beneficiaries of what Paul probably viewed as a, as a delay. So, city of Rome, we're looking in uh, the passage that deals with sanctification. Paul in Romans uses theological terms, so we've been careful to define them and explain them. Justification, think in terms of salvation. Common word, salvation, but he's dealing with it from a legal perspective. Uses courtroom language. Remember, he's writing to those that are familiar with Scripture, those that are believers, those that have experienced a born-again experience. So he's writing to them. He's not writing to unbelievers. He's writing to believers. So he's using theological terms. They were familiar with these terms in the first century. A lot of people today are not. That's why we spent so much time explaining them. So justification is how do we obtain a right standing before God. We're guilty before the judge of the world. We stand condemned, and there's no hope for the human race apart from what Christ has done on the cross once and for all. We stand before the judge guilty. We're sentenced to eternal separation. Jesus, when he died on the cross, he died to pay that penalty so that now, simply by believing in him, we may, in fact, be justified, or, using more contemporary courtroom language, acquitted of the crime. Not because we're innocent, but because somebody else paid the penalty. Christ is the substitute for you and I. Now, in sanctification 6 through 8, how do we live a life (laughs) that is pleasing to God, and he's dealing with that in uh, chapter 6 through 8. And we have three parts to it. He gives primarily principles of how to deal with living the Christian life, and the key to it is union with Christ. He uses more theological terms there that are a little confusing to some people. And then we're in chapter 7, where he's dealing with some of the issues, some of the problems. We still live in a fallen world, We still live with sinful natures, even though we are totally forgiven in Christ only, even though he views us as righteous. We've been declared righteous, not made righteous. And chapter 7 is dealing with those issues that we encounter after we become believers. So that's what we need to understand. And then in chapter 8, 
after he lays out the problems, he's going to go into detail concerning what is the power available to live the Christian life. So he lays out our tendency. How do we tend to try to live it out? Chapter 8, he gives us the only way that we successfully can experience the Christian life. So we have the power. And before we get into the details, let me just remind you of where we've come. And I I mentioned chapter 6 focuses on the main principles. Now he develops further principles as we go through chapter 7, but it's from the perspective of the struggle or the uh, problems that we'll encounter. One of them is number 10. We saw nine principles after chapter 6 or from chapter 6. Church-age believers are not under law. So we spend a lot of time discussing what that means and in what sense are we not under law. We saw that law was never intended to and cannot sanctify. Now, what we mean by sanctify, work a work within us of growing us into righteousness, setting us apart. That's the essence of the word, setting us apart so that we're useful to God. Christian growth is another way of looking at it. The law, or a legalistic approach, does not do that, cannot sanctify, and was not even intended. So we looked at the law, we looked at the Old (coughs) Testament, the Mosaic Covenant, that we're no longer under And I gave you the two extremes a few weeks ago. We have a tendency, if we're not under law, to rip out the Old Testament from the Bible. But that's not biblical. That's called antinomianism. Paul was falsely accused of that. And he was not antinomian or anti-law. Or we go the other extreme and we try to meticulously obey it as if it were the overriding constitution of the church and we're not under it because it was the constitution for the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. We have new principles that Jesus Christ introduced. So we have the problem with the law. And Russ and I were discussing earlier how a lot of churches are very legalistic. Now, it doesn't mean that we abandon the law or we don't attempt to abide by it, but we cannot please God by abiding Chapter 8 is going to show that in the power of the Holy Spirit, as we allow the Spirit to work, we will be obeying the law, but it will be in a new power and from a new perspective. So the law was never intended to sanctify. The law is useful. So we don't throw it away. We don't rip it out of our Bibles. The emphasis of the first part of chapter 7, the law is useful for exposing sin. In other words, exposing those areas that we need to change, those areas we need to deal with. So it's useful, and we're going to see a couple more this morning. So we're looking at the problems. The law can't sanctify. We completed the first 12 verses. The sin nature can't sanctify. So we're going to talk some more. I started the discussion concerning the fact that we have two natures. When we came into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, we were given a new nature. The unbeliever does not have a new nature. All he has is what we might describe as a sinful or old nature. And to try to live the Christian life in the power of that old sinful nature is going to bring you to frustration that Paul expresses in verse 24. 
Oh, wretched man that I am. And he's giving his own experience here. And then it transitions to what he's going to deal with in chapter 8. Okay? So we're looking at 13 through 25. The sin nature cannot sanctify. He lays out the case dealing with not only the law, but he's transitioning into this struggle that we face. The case for the sin nature, and I use case because I'm going to alliterate here using C's. Hopefully it'll cement these things or help you to remember them in your minds. Before, I called it the issue of the law. Well, you could say the issue of the law here, but I'm going to alliterate and use case. Therefore, in other words, based on what he's talked about before, we're no longer under law, but under grace and all of the issues of it. And he corrects a false impression. If we're no longer under law and there's this close association between law and how it exposes sin, is there something wrong with the law that God has removed us from being under it? Is there a problem? So he deals with all of that. We spent a lot of time on that. Now he's coming to the conclusion, therefore, did that which is good, verse 12, the law is good. There's value to it. Spent a lot of time discussing that. Did that which is good, the law, become a cause of death for me? Remember, there's a relationship there. No, the answer is, may it never be. Strongest way in the Greek language that you can negate something. And I've kind of summarized it in... We might express today, are you crazy? Are you insane to even think this? May it never be as the words that Paul uses. So then he says, rather, it was sin. We've drawn that distinction. The problem is always with the issue of sin, not the law. And we're going to see in this passage, the problem is not with the new nature either, but sin that continues to reside within us even after we've been totally forgiven of sin, and after we've been declared righteous, and after the Holy Spirit has come to indwell us the moment we trusted in him. So rather it was sin. We use the analogy of an MRI machine. Great technology today. Wonderful things that it'll give us in terms of imaging and diagnosing certain things. And we said that the machine is good. In fact, it's tremendous. But if you expect the machine to cure you, then you're going to be frustrated. And if you insist, no, put me through the machine several times so that this cancer goes away, that's going to be a frustrating thing. It's the cancer that is bad, not the machine. The analogy, the law is good because it exposes sin. Problem is not with the law, but God never intended that the law heal or that the law give life. It only pointed the way to truth and to good good life, but it never gave the power. We need the power of the Holy Spirit. That's Romans chapter 8. So the cancer or sin is what is bad, and he's going to transition to sin still resides within us. We still have cancer. We've been diagnosed, and we have been given a cure, but the cure has not had its total effect yet. But what the law does, it's given in order that it might be shown to be sin. In other words, it reveals and makes clear sin, 
And this whole process makes evident that we still are sinners. And at the bottom there, that sin would become utterly sinful. In other words, that it would be viewed for all that it is. The reality is, just like (laughs) cancer, you may feel fine in the initial stages. You may not sense that you have it. But in reality, it's going to kill you. And in some cases, you're going to go through extreme pain. The analogy here, sin is that way. It is deceptive. We may think we're okay, but in reality, it is utterly sinful, utterly destructive. And that's what the law is designed to do, is to reveal that utter sinfulness to us. And I summarized, we went through all of this to show the sinfulness of sin, even starting in verse 5, sinful passions work within us. Verse 7, the law makes us aware of sin. Verse 8, sin produces coveting. It's not the law. The law exposes coveting. He uses the Ten Commandments. Verse 9, sin became alive in me when I was awakened to the full effect of sin, and I died. Remember he's using the word death here, not ceasing to breathe, but in that broader, more comprehensive sense. I died inwardly, spiritually, in in relationship to things that are eternal. Verse 11, sin deceived me. Sin is always deceiving. We minimize it, always. And it killed me, again, using similar language there. And then verse 13, sin shown utterly sinful. That's what the law is designed to do. So that brings us to verse 14 through 17. I'm still reviewing here. We're using C again, captivity of the sin nature. Verse 14, for we know, now he's going to transition. He's going to move from the law. He's still dealing with the law, but he's now moving to the problem that we face as believers. For we know that the law is spiritual. The law has the characteristics of God himself. Verse 12, the law is holy. Now it's spiritual. And it is understood through the Spirit. But I am sinful. And I also gave you this as a review. The law's value, it's inerrant. Psalm 19, it reveals sin. We saw that in chapter 7. It's an instrument of God. Verse 8 and 1 Timothy 1.8, it promotes life. Verse 10, it's holy and righteous. Verse 12, it's good. Verse 12, and now in verse 13 again when he refers to it. And we're going to see in verse 16, he again uses the word good, although it's a different Greek word. And now in verse 14, it is spiritual. And not only that, in verse 22, when we get there, maybe next time, next week, we're going to see that the law comes from God, or it's of God. little phrase that Paul uses there. So verse 14, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am flesh. And he uses a... Word relating to flesh, and it's better translated as fleshly. It's more of an adjective than it is an actual noun. I am fleshly, and last time I started to talk about, this is one of the descriptive words that Paul uses to describe this, this nature or this inclination that stays with us even after we come into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. I added an image to it just to kind of emphasize it. The sinful nature. There's something underneath that. (laughs) And sometimes this is what all that people see is the external. But 
In six six, we already he already used a descriptive phrase. If I can get that out, he calls it the old man. He used the word anthropos there, and then the Greek word old, referring to the the person that we were before we became believers. Now, unfortunately, we still have that person as part of who we are, in addition to a new nature that is internal and unseen. He calls it, in that same verse, a body of sin. In other words, relating to the physical, not entirely, though, because he's going to relate it to the mind as well, and to the soul, you might even say, but he associates sin with the body. The body receives temptation or stimuli that we see, and we do external sin. So this is another phrase that he uses to describe that sinful nature. And in verse 14 here, he's using the word fleshly. Not sarks, which is a real common word that can be translated flesh. And next time I'm going to give you a more complete word study on it, because he's going to get to it in verse 18. We won't get that far this morning. In this context, verse 14, sarkinas, related to sarks. You want to expound upon it more? Like sarcophagus? No, no, not related to sarcophagus. Flesh. Flesh, fleshly. Yeah, it's more of an adjectival word. We'll get to sarks later, verse 18, and we'll talk about that. I want you to notice also, he says, but I am flesh, sold, and I put this for Maddie last week because she asked about what's the meaning of the word bondage, what is the Greek word there, and you might expect doulos because we've looked at that word before, but the phraseology, actually the Greek word for sold, uh, pepramenas, in fact that's a participle, and this whole phrase, into bondage to translates or attempts to give the idea of a preposition. There's not actually a word there. It's just a preposition. I tried to verbally explain this last week. Remember the explanation? Or did it, did it just kind of buzz over everybody's heads here? Except for a, a Greek speaker, maybe. So, the little word, this is a preposition, hupo. But it's hupo, a simple preposition. It basically just means under something. And the thrust of it, and I think the translation, it, I don't have a problem with the translation, but it includes this whole area into bondage too. In other words, under the bondage or under this weight of sin, given the idea of being in bondage to someone, something. Then the simple word sin, notice it has the article, the sin. So he's not talking about sins in the plural, it's singular, and he's also identified it as a specific, and in this context, what does it refer to most often? That sin capacity, or that sin inclination. We might describe it as sin nature. Okay? So that's that little phrase, which is a strong phrase, by the way. Right. Uh, We can view it from a computer way, and that's the default mode. We have to, we'll get to this, but we'll have, we have to take steps in terms of consciously, moment by moment, day by day, walking in the spirit, because the default mode is what we're used to. In fact, I'm going to use a little cartoon later on to get that far. Okay, then we have this long portion, 14 through 17, 
and I kind of humorously tried to describe it here. I'll get to that in a moment, but let me read it for, you see this conflict, this turmoil, and we'll read it quickly, for we know that the law is spiritual. In other words, the law is great. Problem is not the law, but I, I am sold. Notice all the eyes there. I am, I am a flesh sold into bodies of sin. We just saw that. For what I am doing, I do not understand, for I'm not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So now no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. See this conflict, this struggle, this battle. And this part of the passage is the reason a lot of commentators say this can't be a description of Paul as a believer. It may describe my life, but the Apostle Paul. And I made this point first person singular. In fact, he changes when he comes to this part of chapter 7. Now, he's used first person singular before, but not so frequently. When he's talking about his past life, he talks in the past tense, but it's present tense here, and it's first person. So I think he's describing a struggle, a real struggle that he experienced. In fact, if everyone would be honest, all of us experience as we grow in Christ. So I kind of humorously, when we were talking about the different views on this passage, the commentators talk about anyone trying to keep the law, trying to keep the law. Now that's true, but I think it goes beyond that, or a second view, Jewish people keeping the law before Christ or before they became believers, and there were Jewish people, Jewish Christians in, in Rome, and then a very common view that we discussed in some detail last week, Paul, while he was an unbeliever. And then uh, the view that I believe is Paul as a believer, experiencing the same things that anyone else experienced. But from that description, I tried to humorously say, no, Paul's a teenager. <laughs> a fifth view. But we're just kidding on that one. So let's emphasize it and let's read it again. Except let's read it from the perspective of what goes on in a believer, and I've highlighted it with the different coloring. The pinkish is a reflection of Paul from the sinful inclination. In other words, from that perspective or from that nature, the blue is from the perspective or from the new nature. The nature that God has created the moment we trusted in him. And for Christians, born-again Christians, we have two natures. Now, this is debated amongst some theologians, but I think this is one of the clearest passages that illustrate that. So let's read it again. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I, in my flesh, in my old nature am of flesh or I'm fleshly, okay? Sold into bondage of sin, then verse 15, for what I in my sinful fleshly nature, what I am doing, there's another part of me in the blue there, I do not understand. In other words, inwardly, it just doesn't make any sense. I'm totally forgiven. I'm a new creature. I have a new nature. This this is baffling to this new person that I am. I do not understand. 
For I, the sinful inclination, I am not practicing, in other words, in the flesh, I'm not doing the things that are pleasing to God, I'm not practicing what I inwardly, the inner man, he's going to describe it later, or in the new nature, what I would like to do. I'm inclined and I want in the new nature to please God and I can't do it. And then it goes on, but I, back to the fleshly I, I am doing the very thing that is not good. It's obviously evil. Very thing. I, in that new nature, I hate it. So I know it's destructive and it's doing damage. See how he's going back and forth. You see the interplay here between the flesh that we might describe or that old inclination. Then verse 16, he goes on. But if I, that sinful aspect of me, do the very thing I, that inward person, uh, do not want to do, I, in my new nature, agree with the law. And the unbeliever and the unbelieving nature resists the law and doesn't agree with the law, confessing that the law is good, because I have a biblical perspective on the law. The inward man has a biblical perspective. Then verse 17, so now no longer am I. Now, when I get there, he's not trying to get out from responsibility. I'll explain that when we get to verse 17. But, so now no longer am I that recreated, regenerated self. That's why it's in blue. I, the one doing it, but sin which dwells in that old aspect, that old me. That makes sense? Just describe anyone here? Not just a teenage girl? Not just a teenage boy? Even Paul. So let's go back and develop this. What I want you to notice from starting here, but it goes all the way to verse 25, in Romans 7, I. Do you notice the I? In fact, in the whole chapter, 29 times. This is going to be in stark contrast. 24 of them in 7, 13 through 25. The focus is I trying to live the Christian life in that old, sinful, decrepit nature. And it's going to end in verse 24, wretched man that I am, or wretchedness. Does that make sense? Because that conflict is intense. I want to do the right, and I can't do it. I want to do what the law says, but I don't seem to have any ability in myself. So... 29 times. Now he also uses me and my 19 times in chapter 7. So add those two up. What is that? Let's see, 30, is that 48? 14 times in 7, 13 through 25. So what's the emphasis of the chapter? Trying to live the Christian life in the power of that sinful nature. It's frustrating. It's defeating. Here's some more. He also talks about law. That's the first part mainly, but he carries it through to this other part as well, 23 times, and notice it diminishes eight times in 7, 13 through 25. The Holy Spirit only once, 7, 6. In fact, what does it say in 7, 6? But now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound. Remember, we're no longer under law so that we serve in the newness of the Spirit. Newness of the Holy Spirit is capitalized, and it's probably a reference to the Holy Spirit, and not in the oldness of the letter. 
It's the only occurrence of Holy Spirit. Now notice the contrast in Romans 8. The Holy Spirit or God or Jesus 84 times. How many times I? Anyone want to venture a guess? Two? Very good. Good guess. Either that or you're a scholar. Probably the latter. I only in 818. And notice it's not focused on Paul. He's expressing opinion, you might say, in 818. In other words, this is what I think. Also similarly in verse 38. What is the emphasis? The power of the Holy Spirit. There's two ways of living the Christian life. That's the emphasis of Romans 8. The law still is part of what he's saying only five times because the emphasis is now on what God does to enable us to live the Christian life. The point being is we cannot live the Christian life in our own strength. It takes something beyond us. It cannot be done by trying to simply gut it out and obey Scripture. In fact, we're going to see that we cannot live the Christian life simply with willpower. You're going to see that in this passage as well. Just look at it carefully. Verse 15, for what I, and I'm going to carry through the coloring. In other words, I, in my sinful nature, I am doing, and I want you to notice there's going to be three words in verse 15 that relate to performance or relate to living things out. For what I am doing, and he uses the first one, katargazomai, pronounced right? Ah, you can't even pronounce it. (laughs) Katargazomai. Okay. Okay. For what I am doing, doing, that's the Greek word, I do not understand. I do not understand. In other words, I'm baffled. It's not that he doesn't have comprehension. It's not that he doesn't know something. And by the way, the word there is the basic, very common word of to know, ginosko. Ginosko oftentimes, in fact, very often, is used to know experientially. But he's saying more in the sense of, this baffles me. I, You know, I'm a new person, and yet I'm still over here. I, I'm back and forth. I don't know. You know, it's just confusing to me. So I do not understand. And now we're going to have some more contrasts between... What Paul tries to do, or I summarize it as performance, and he's using a particular word. Now, it occurs in the New Testament 22 times. Not real frequent, but yet not real rare. It has the idea of affecting something, and it occurs in verse 13. I didn't call attention to it, but it's translated affecting something, performing something to do something, to bring about something, to produce, depending on the context, it can be used in these different ways. And he's going to use the same word, doing, and it's translated doing in 15, we're going to see it in 17, we're going to see it in 18, and we're going to see it in 20. Performing or living it out, trying to live it out. I do not understand for I, notice the pink again, I and my sinful nature am not doing, not practicing, Now, he's using another Greek word, a little bit easier to pronounce, prazo. Even I can pronounce it. I am not practicing, but notice performance, doing what I would like, not doing what I like. So we'll go back to our slide here. Prazo, I've got your English transliteration there, so you can 
pronounce it there. In uh, this context, in verse 15, translated something that you practice or something that you do as a habit or as a ongoing thing. We're going to see it again in verse 19. So he's using these words over and over. Has this idea of doing something or practicing. So it's almost, it's pretty much synonymous. They're synonyms with the first one. Doing, practicing, carrying something out, performing. Tongues has accomplish. Accomplish. Yeah, in fact, it's translated, well, actually this one's translated accomplish as well in, in another context. The last part of the verse, what I would like to do a third word. Third word here. Poieo, but it uses it twice, but I am poieo again. I'm doing the very thing I hate. So he's dealing with doing, performing, practicing, living out Christian life, and it's a battle. Can't do it. Poieo is translated do in 15 and 16 and 19 and 20 and 21. So he's using these words over and over. Living out the life, performing the life, practicing Christianity, doing it, has the idea of doing something, making something, or causing something to be. See what we have there? Lots of verses. And then notice, now he's going to contrast, and he's going to use the word, what I want, or my will. And he uses the word fellow, what I would like, uh, would like, word fellow is there, and then I've got the other Greek words just to kind of make it clear. In other words, there's a discontinuity between what I want, my will, and what I actually produce when I'm living in the flesh, in the power of that old nature. We have another option that we can appropriate, but when I'm living in the flesh, I can't do what God wants me to do. Make sense? And no matter how determined I am, in fact, that's one of the points he's making here. It's not a matter of willpower. And we can add performance and willpower. Willpower, you fall short. The word fellow, verse 15, what I'd like to do, what I want to do. Use the word want in 16, 19, two times, 20 and 21. And it's translated will in verse 18. So it occurs lots as well. So there's a discontinuity between what I want or wish and willpower and what I'm able to perform, do, practice, etc. See the contrast there? Okay, we have a new nature. New nature. It's a regenerated life. And Paul has described it in 521. It's resurrection life described in chapter 6. Verse 6, it's desiring good. And we're going to see this over and over in this passage, verse 15 and 16, but it does not have the capacity to do good in the sinful nature. It occurs again in 18 and 19, and then also in 21. You can just review those. So verse 15, and the new nature hates sin. Hates sin, verse 15, that's also there. I do the very things I hate, and I can't do the things I want to do. I hate those things. We're going to see it again in verse 19. I'm hoping that you're seeing this contrast between two natures that we have in this passage. We have the sinful nature. It's called the body of sin in 6.6. It's also in Colossians 2. 
I've reviewed this before, the flesh or fleshly, 714, and other passages that we'll look at, verse 18, 1 Corinthians 3, 1 through 4. And he's going to talk about indwelling sin. We'll get to that in verse 17, but also 18 and 20. The natural man, these are different phrases that are used for the, the old nature in Scripture, different places. A lot of them are right here in Romans, Romans chapter 7. The old nature, or sinful nature, and the new nature is described in Ephesians, and I'll give you some other phrases that we have here in Romans. Ephesians 4, 23 to 24, 1 Corinthians 2, 15-3. through chapter 3, verse 1. We've described the old nature, and keep in mind, the unbeliever, this is all that he has. He has no regenerated new nature. And it's described in different ways. Isaiah, filthy rags, unrighteous, old nature, sin, bondage, deadness. That's all he has. The believer who is born again has a new nature, and God has given every spiritual blessing declared us absolutely righteous, declared us judicially, like in a law court. And it's like we have a new account with God. It's like a vault. We can draw on that account, and within that vault are every spiritual blessings with our name on it. Your name is on the account, and you can draw from it. Chapter 8 is what we're going to talk about, drawing from that account. 16, but if I do the very thing I do not want, there's Thelo again, want to do, po'e'o, there's po'e'o again, performance, so I do, I perform the thing that I don't want to do, I agree with the law, brings the law back in. The law is good, spiritual, gives insight, reveals sin, and I agree with it. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, and I confess that the law is good. There's the other occurrence, another occurrence. And the good here is a different Greek word. First two times he uses agathos. And it has the idea, let's see, I may be mixing these up. Uh, go ahead and feel free. Uh, which one refers to good, kind of inherently good? Is it agathos or kalos? Kalos? Agathos, okay. Kalos is beautiful, good in aesthetics as well. Not just inherent, but also aesthetically. So the law is good in every aspect, you might say. He uses both words. Confessing that the law is good. Why do we go back to that old nature if we confess? And you're familiar with Charlie Brown and Peanuts. Uh, Linus has a security blanket. You only knew how stupid you look standing there holding that blanket. That's us. We cling to that old nature. We're used to it. It gives us security. We're familiar with it. And then she says, but I suppose you don't care how stupid you look as long as you're secure. Says, That's right. I'm secure in my stupidity. <laughs> Does that describe us in our old nature? We're secure in it. We don't care how contradictory it may be, and from God's perspective, how stupid it may be, and how baffling it might be in terms of us not being able to understand it. So, spiritual sensitivity, this is where I probably need to get out of here, and I'll leave you with this. Back to Paul, I want you to notice a couple of things. Look these up real quick, 1 Corinthians 15, 9. Who's got it? 
You got it, Connie? How about Ephesians 3.8? You got it? Okay. And somebody look up uh, 1 Timothy 1.15. Okay. Dwayne. And the last one, 2 Corinthians 2.14. Who's got that one? Okay. Craig's got it back there. Craig, what I want you to notice is spiritual growth produces greater awareness of sin. Greater awareness of sin. It might be illustrated in the way that Paul describes himself. Greater sensitivity to sin, greater realization of its damage. Paul, at age 56, describes himself, 159, what does he say there? I am the least of the apostles, who is not worthy to call an apostle, because I persecuted Okay, least of the apostles. All the others are greater than me. At age 60, Ephesians 3, 8. To me, who have less than the least of all saints. Less than the least, not just apostles, but all saints. He's realizing his sinfulness. And at the end of his life, age 62, 1 Timothy 1, 15. Who's got that one? It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Chief of sinners. This is Paul at maturity, close to death, matter of maybe a year or so, or less. Yet, what also does he say? Thanks be to God, who always leads us in Christ's triumphal procession, and through us spreads the aroma of the knowledge of him. Okay, there's the possibility of victory over sin. Sorry, Craig. She trumped you. <laughs> Go backwards and before Paul, and I don't know the exact word says, we have the treasure of broken vessels. Yes, broken vessels. Broken in the potter's hand, and it's he who remakes us. Yes. As he wills. We'll get to that in chapter five. Right. So what Paul is picturing here in Romans 7 is pretty typical if we are trying to live the Christian life in our own strength, with our own willpower, in our own abilities, it leaves us wretched, as verse 24 says. When we get to chapter 8, we're going to see the victory part. So now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. In other words, there are two things going on, and we'll start with that verse next time. Closing thought, there's a real battle going on inside of us. And depending on where you're at, it can be very, very intense. I think Paul illustrates it. Who wants to join close for us? Dear Lord, we thank you so much for the opportunity to be here again. Look into this wonderful letter of Paul. Dear Lord, God, to apply this to our lives, struggle dealing with sin. We cannot do it on our own. We're so grateful for you loving us so much. Die for you to send your Holy Spirit as we